If you join me in Bible study tonight, please open up your Bibles to the book of John, chapter 21. The question begins like this. It says, John 21, 15, as Yeshua asking Peter, if Peter loves, Greek word agapao, the same love that Yeshua uses in John 14, 15, Yeshua, and Peter replies that he loves, Greek 5368, phileo, Yeshua. Same when Yeshua asked Peter the second time in John 21:16. But in John 21:17, Yeshua asked Peter if Peter loves, Greek word 5368, phileo, him, changing to the version of love to the love Peter has responded with. And Peter replies with Greek 5368, phileo, again. So it seems to me that Yeshua was asking Peter if he loved him with agape love, but that Peter would only give Yeshua phileo love. So Yeshua seems to concede to that. What are your thoughts? We've all heard this discussion probably before. But let's read. Let's start in John 21, 15. It says, when he had eaten breakfast, Yeshua said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Yeshua said to him, feed to my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. So I've heard many sermons preached on this about how they keep changing the word for love. But that's an interesting question only if they were speaking Greek. Let's turn to the book of Acts and see whether Messiah and the apostles were Greek speakers or not. Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1. This is a quite appropriate question for this time of year, right? Because at Hanukkah time, we remember the fact that uh, Antiochus Epiphanes tried to force all the children of Israel to renounce God, to turn from the Torah, and to Hellenize, that is to adopt the Greek language, the Greek culture, the Greek religions, the Greek sexual immoralities, and how some of the people revolted and said, we will not do that, we will stay true to God and eventually overthrew the Syrians under command of Antiochus Epiphanes and retook the temple and cleansed it and built a new altar to worship God. So if you found Acts 6, and I'm sure you have by now, start in verse 1. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. The word Hebrews here in verse 1 refers to the Hebrew-speaking Jews, referring to the apostles. And the Hellenists are the Greek-speaking Jews, those that had gone apostate under Antiochus Epiphanes, 
and had, in the eyes of the rest of the Jewish people, been traitors to God and to the people. That's why there is animosity between the Hebrew-speaking Jews and the Greek-speaking Jews. Then the 12, referring to the 12 apostles, they're the Hebrew-speaking Jews being um, complained against here. He says, then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. First point, if the apostles are Hebrew-speaking Jews and they have a problem with the Greek-speaking Jews, then what would make us think Messiah was a Greek-speaking Jew? Hmm? Yeah, they wouldn't have had the same attitude if Messiah had been a Greek-speaking Jew. Verse 3, therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch whom they set before the apostles. When they had prayed, they laid hands on them. So this lets us know that the apostles are not Greek-speaking Jews. So this discussion between Yeshua and Peter in John chapter 21 would not have been in Greek, and in Hebrew, we wouldn't have the question. We need also to look farther in the book of Acts, to where Paul addresses, addresses the crowd. Let's see. He goes to the Roman and says, may address the crowd, and he says, can you speak Greek? It is at the end of chapter 21. I know my commentaries say the same thing. Nobody spoke Hebrew back in those days. It was a dead language. Everybody spoke Greek, but the Bible doesn't give that same account. So in Acts 21, verse 37, let me write that down. Acts 21, verse 37. says, Then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I speak to you? He replied, Can you speak Greek? If everyone spoke Greek, what kind of a question would this be? It'd be like me asking you, do you speak English? It, it would be a, yeah, we're speaking English to each other. It would be a silly question. Verse 40. So when he given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language. Saying. What's that word Saying. It's a quote, and it means he's speaking Hebrew. But even my Liberty Bible commentaries here, they, they need so badly for the New Testament to be in Greek, they say this is a, uh, an error in the script. It's an error in the scrolls. It could not possibly have been Hebrew, because nobody spoke or understood it. It was a dead language. And it's simply not true. Let's read on. Chapter 22, verse 1. Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. When he heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. They're not turning to each other going, what language is this? We don't understand. Is there an interpreter, right? Because they were all 
Hebrew-speaking Jews. So what is the point of John chapter 21? Why does Yeshua three times ask Peter around a charcoal fire, do you love me? Because that's where Peter denied Messiah how many times? Three times. Let's go to Matthew 26. There's only two times they make reference to a charcoal fire in the New Testament. First is Matthew 26 where Peter denies Messiah. The second is in John 21 when Peter has three opportunities and does not deny. So Matthew chapter 26 verse 69 to 75. Oops, I got a red one out there already. Let's see. Yes, I would like one what, Pat? We'll figure it out later. Okay. She just should have had them, but I'll, I'll get with her later. Maybe somehow she didn't get them. Okay. Matthew 26, 69. And while we're on that subject, have I sent you guys all the little scanned copy of the booklet? Was Jesus Christ born on Christmas, December 25th? Did I send that out to everybody? Was it then in those three things you just sent? It was not in the three things I just sent. Because this is not something that Becky had in her files. This one's from the Alabama Christian College Bookstore, which is why I picked this one up. It's a Christian college in Alabama, and it's all about how Nobody thinks that Messiah was really born on December 25th. And here's the evidence that he wasn't. And then the other one I'll send out is scan of, if I haven't before, it's called Baptized Paganism. You've sent that, but it's been I have sent that one. It's been about a year. Okay. So Matthew 26, um, 69 to 75. When books are out of print, you can scan them and share them. Okay. November of last year. November of last year. You've got them. Okay. Matthew 26, 69. Now Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him saying, You also were with Yeshua of Galilee. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are saying. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him there and said to those who were there, This fellow also is with Yeshua of Nazareth. But again he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. A little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely you are also one of them, for your speech betrays you. Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the word of Yeshua and said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. In Judaism... The concept of repentance is not just saying I'm sorry, but it's being in the same circumstances and instead of making the wrong decision, you make the right decision. So three times Peter was asked to confirm that he knew Messiah and three times he denied. And around the charcoal fire in John chapter 21, Messiah asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? Gave him three opportunities to deny, but did he deny this time? No, he affirmed that he does, in fact, know and love our Messiah Yeshua. Uh, let me add to that. If you notice in the scriptures we just read, yep. if you'll notice there's a progression of denial. Uh, not me. 
I don't know him. Mm -hmm. And these curses, I, you know, get over. No. Yep, a statement of vow and then a curse. But then when you go to the resolution in John, it's, do you love me? Yeah. <coughs> Feed my sheep. Yep. Or take, take my care of my lambs. I mean, and then, do you love me? It's a little bit stronger. Yep. Tend to my sheep. And then, do you truly love me? You know, everything. Lord, you know I love you. Yeah. I mean, and it's like, I mean, how can I say anything more? I mean, you know that. Yeah. I think you see the same progression. I think that would be what the Hebrew would bring out, where the Greek yeah. turns into something different. Right. So the question would only arise if you were taught that it was a Greek text. I, had a, I was going to go and ask, would there be any significance in the, when he said, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, and feed my sheep? Is there any difference or significance between those three different presentations? Just as Doc just explained, yeah. it's getting a little more intense each time, just as his denials were getting more intense. Somebody in GoToMeeting said... Yes, this is Julie. Uh, I was wondering, did you say he denied him around a coal fire? A charcoal fire, uh, right. I, where is that yep. Matthew, that it was a, that it was a charcoal fire? Um, just trying to make sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, let's see. I mean, how do you know it was a charcoal fire when uh, you denied him? Um... You got to look at all the the different accounts. Luke, yes, sir. Luke chapter twenty two. Luke twenty two fifty five. Yep, in our English, it only says "sat by the fire." But if you look underneath, it's a charcoal fire. And there's only two times the charcoal fire is referred to in Scripture. One is the denial. The other is the affirming. Okay. The next question. Oh. Next question is very similar. It says, what is the most likely language Paul would have spoken when he asked the centurion in Acts 21.37 if he could speak to him? The most likely language is that he spoke to him in Hebrew, and the Roman soldier was having trouble with that, so he said, can you speak Greek? Said it with the Roman soldier in Acts 21.37, appear to prefer to converse with Paul in Greek. He absolutely would prefer, because Greek as well as Latin were common languages within the Roman Empire. So they were languages with which the Roman centurion would have been comfortable. He may not have been comfortable with the Hebrew. And another reason he may have asked him, can you speak in Greek, is he may have wanted to make sure he could follow Paul's conversation and see what he was telling his countrymen. And Might on, have been Trump. Yes, sir? On Morris Hill, in that event, Paul most likely was speaking in Greek, correct? Well, I don't know. He always traveled with Luke because Luke could interpret for him. Luke was a Greek-speaking Jew. Yeah. Okay. So... Whether he spoke to the crowd in Greek or not, I kind of doubt, which is why he had Luke with him all the time to translate. But I wasn't there. Julie, 
different way. Yeah, he thought the most likely thing that he, he says, well, are you not that Egyptian? There, there, I've forgotten the name of the Egyptian, but there was about 10 years previously there'd been a rebellion and a, a, an Egyptian led a group of, of characters and if Paul had still got a shaved head, he may have mistaken him for the, the Egyptian. He may well have mistaken him for being an Egyptian. And the Roman soldier may not have understood Egyptian any more than Hebrew. That's right. So he's more likely to have spoken to him in the... Yeah. Yeah. So if you speak to me in a language I don't understand, I may not necessarily recognize where you're from. And somebody's come back with two follow-up questions, even though we haven't finished the answer to this one. The first says, we place a lot of importance on the difference between neos and kainos, because in the various scriptures, the difference between these words are important, which is correct. And in Hebrew, you have chadash, which can be either the equivalent of neos or kainos. You have to tell from circumstances, from context, from the other words around it. And the other one is, so my question is, where do we draw the line on dissecting the Greek? The answer is, when dissecting the Greek helps us understand the underlying Hebrew, it's good. But if it comes down just to parsing between the difference between phileo and agape, that's not really helpful because there's one Hebrew word and it only has the one meaning. It doesn't have the same flavors that Greek has when they have three different words for love. The, the third one being eros, which doesn't appear in the Greek, thank goodness. Okay. So to continue this question and answer, um, I, I said go to Acts 21, 37 to 40, but we just, just did. I said most likely Paul spoke to him in Hebrew. If Paul had spoken to him in Greek, the question asked by the centurion would have made no sense. The soldier would have spoken Greek, though, because it's one of the common languages of the Roman Empire. So if he wanted to make sure, for sure, what Paul was telling them, he would have wanted Paul to speak to him in Greek. Oddly enough, does it say, let's go back to Acts 31. Does it give Paul's response? Acts 2137. Verse 39, Paul responds, But Paul said, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, and I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. So he never answers the question, can you speak Greek? So I don't know if he responded to him in Greek, or if he just didn't ever answer the question. Not that we ever have people who don't answer the question when they're asked one, but sometimes it happens. Ah, the next question is a goodie too. Are non-Messianic Jews still waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit on Shavuot? My answer to that is that most non-Messianic Jews are atheists and they're not deeply involved in, in studying the scriptures. Let me answer it this way. The law school where I got my Juris Doctorate degree was a Jewish law school, so all my, almost all of my classmates were Jewish. And my best friend in class 
was an older Jewish lady. She was almost 50. But her husband was an attorney, and she just wanted to be an attorney too because, well, he was having so much fun. And I asked her, because this was a long time ago, what's the main difference between Christianity and Judaism? Because I didn't know. And she looked at me and said, Wayne, you know, I'd tell you if I had any idea, but I don't. She said, my husband and I go to shul on Yom Kippur, don't understand a word that's being said, and then we go home. And next Yom Kippur, we repeat. She said, I have no idea. So if we think of most non-Messianic Jews as being deep Bible scholars, we may be overstating it. And most non-Messianic Jews of today, after the Holocaust, are atheists, saying that the Holocaust is proof that there is no God because God couldn't have allowed something like that to happen. My thought is it's just the opposite. It's the proof that there is a God and that Satan is trying to keep the Jewish people from fulfilling Matthew 23. You'll see me no more to you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Satan's been trying to wipe out the children of Israel so Messiah can't return. So most especially would not have any knowledge of the New Testament prophecies that we know about the coming of the Holy Spirit and the promises Messiah made to the disciples that they remain in Jerusalem until Shavuot, till the Holy Spirit would come. And the doctors that I work with at the hospital, uh, one hospital was Jewish, and um, they didn't know the Old Testament. They didn't know their, the kings. They didn't know anything about it. Right. So they didn't, you know, yep. it was just tradition to them. Yeah, exactly. One of the couples in my congregation down in Alabama were Jewish, and she had been born in Israel, eighth generation Israeli. And she took the biblical Hebrew class from me because she couldn't read the Old Testament and understand it. She could pronounce the words, but she didn't know what they meant. And she said, that's not unusual. Okay, so let's look at Acts chapter 1, verse 4. Acts chapter 1, verse 4. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. And of course, that promise of the Father was the coming of the Holy Spirit. Would most non-Messianic Jews have studied Acts chapter 1? The answer is no. Let's look at Acts chapter 2, verse 33. How do we know it's the promise of the Holy Spirit? It says so here. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. So again, most non-Messianic Jews would not know Acts chapter 1 or 2 or any of the promises Messiah made in the Gospels. There are many who do know the New Testament And are they messianic or not? I didn't really know Bob Dylan. But I know a lot of Jewish people in Israel that live in more orthodox communities. And they sure talk like they believe in Messiah, but they're not going to say so. Because 
they don't want to be ostracized by the neighbors. A lot of Jews Wait. in America are Baptists or have been Baptists, and they don't know anything about the Holy Spirit. Okay. It's, there are a lot of ministries that are actually Baptist, and they're, they're run completely by Jewish, at least down in Florida in particular. Um, it's really interesting how people resist knowledge of the Lord. Yeah. Even religious people. Yeah, oftentimes. Yes, Edmund. Um, back in 86 and 90, I was in the congregation in Boston uh, run by Ken Gullickson, who was a lieutenant of uh, Wimbers, and he is the guy that led Bob Dylan to the Lord. Oh, is that right? Uh, he, he said the last... Last week I was there, actually, the last Sunday, that uh, he referred to Bob Dylan, and because there are questions around after the three albums, which were very explicit gospel albums, um, had he wandered away a bit? He said he's he's, uh, in a rather um, different situation to most folk, and people often have wanders around sorting themselves out, but he said he had no doubts that he was... Uh, you know, properly in the kingdom, as it were. And then just very coincidentally, I was sent a link this last week. I mean, I didn't know he was still alive because he's been very ill at times. But uh, dear old Ken, there he was explaining the early days of the vineyard and, and the sort of salvations that were going on. And he talks in passing. I mean, he had all sorts of well-known people in his Hollywood congregations, because they started out of various Bible studies, which then grew into a vineyard. And um, he said, uh, he referred to Bob Dylan, and he said um, that he was reliably informed, although he didn't have recent connection with Bob Dylan, he, he had connection with people uh, regularly who knew him who said, no, he hadn't lost his faith. Um, uh, and if one uh, talked to him, you became aware of it. But he was, in a sense, uh, not as vocal about it. He said it's still there. He was reformed by friends who see him regularly. Excellent. So that, that was just this week I came across that. Excellent. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Next question. Um, yeah, um, Edmund was part of a Messianic congregation in Massachusetts, and the guy who le- led that congregation was the one who led Bob Dylan to faith. So that was cool. Ephesians 6. So let's turn over to Ephesians 6. Bob Dylan didn't like being used, and the vineyard pretty well honored that, but apparently other Christians kind of wanted to use him as part of their evangelism team. He, he kind of withdrew from that, and that's when everybody thought he'd gone back to Judaism. Gotcha. Okay. Ephesians 6. It says in Ephesians 6, Paul gives his dissertation on spiritual warfare. In Ephesians 6, 17, he says, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, 
which is the word of God. The word here is rima, Greek word 4487, not logos, Greek 3056. Is Paul saying arm yourself with the oral Torah? Well, the answer to that's no. no. What's the difference in application between rima and logos? So let's look at Ephesians 617. It says, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Okay, let's go over to Matthew 4.4. 4. Matthew 4.4. 4, where they, in the Greek, use the word rima, which again is R-H-E-M-A, Greek word 4487. So Matthew 4.4, 4, but he's answered and said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Fortunately, that's a quote, right? From Deuteronomy, where the word in Hebrew is? Devar. Mm -hmm. Which means word. And let's go to Matthew chapter 7. It's going to be exactly like a similar question we had a moment ago. They could have used Rima or Logos. Because the word would have been Devar no matter how many times they said it. Because the word would have been Devar in Hebrew no matter how many times they said it. Mm -hmm. Matthew chapter 7 verse 24. Whoever therefore hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And in verse 26 of the same chapter, but everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them would be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And then verse 28, and so was when Yeshua had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching. So notice each one of these was translated as sayings. There is a different Hebrew word for sayings than for word. And what is that? Um, no. Naum. Naum. Do they mean something different? No. They both mean words or sayings. Um, why in Hebrew do we have two different words that mean essentially the same thing and are really used interchangeably? Because if you remember, if you start in Genesis 1 and start with the first Tav and go every 50 letters, you spell the word Torah. So sometimes there are words that mean the same thing, but they have different lengths and you know, to fit the pattern. The word Devar itself has so many different flavors too. The word devar itself has many flavors. It can mean word, it can mean thing, or it can mean matter. Or it can mean saying. Yeah, so it, it means, like, depending on the context, right. it can have different flavors. Different flavors, just not different meanings, per se. So in Hebrew, how do you say the Ten Commandments? Aserat HaDevarim. Yeah. So you can translate the Ten Sayings. When we say the ten words, people go, wait a minute, there's more than one word in each commandment. Well, then use the ten sayings if that makes you feel better. Uh, Paul in the book of Galatians says that the law can be Good and loud. Up, the law can be summed up in 
this word and right. it has a quote. Right. <laughs> like neighbor is yourself. Right. So it's not just one. Yeah. But the one thing we can say for sure is that Paul is not saying arm yourself with the oral Torah. The oral Torah is a, ref, is a way to refer to the rabbinic pronouncements. They're man-made rules and regulations. Their opinions, their comments. Those are all considered by those who believe in an oral Torah, the oral Torah. It is what the Catholic Church did when they said, if Catholic Church doctrine differs from Scripture, which takes precedence? The doctrine. That was the same thing that happened in Judaism. Catholicism just replaced the scribes and the Pharisees to do the same thing. So, is there an oral Torah? No. No. Good and loud. In Ephesians 6, where it talks about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Talking about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It ties directly to Hebrews 4, where it talks about the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two edged sword. Right, and to Revelation 19 as well. Right. Right. So, I just saw that connection. And if it's Paul, then he's obviously just referring to himself. Right. So, it's a good question. If you're just looking at the Greek words and going, do they mean something different? The answer is no. They both mean words or sayings. They can either one be used for words or for sayings. The next question says, evening, in quotes, is referred to in the following two passages, but it doesn't make sense that the first of the passages refers to evening as if it was already evening, and the second of the two passages refers to evening as if it only just occurred. What could be the explanation for this? The first one that she's comparing, or he, is Matthew chapter 14, verse 15. Matthew chapter 14, verse 15. When it was evening, and that's the portion that the person is referring to, when it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a deserted place, and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. The next one is in Matthew 14, same book, same chapter, verse 23. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, there's the next one, when evening came, he was alone there. The Greek words in Matthew 14, 15, and in Matthew 14, 23, are exactly the same all the way down to the tents. They're aortis, aorist participle middle, genitive feminine singular. That is, they are absolutely identical, each and every letter, each and every meaning. So there was absolutely no reason to translate them differently. How many different ways does our English Bible translate the word 
and at the beginning of a sentence. However, but, therefore, so, then, after this, all kinds of different ways. Why? All I can assume is they got bored and didn't want to say and, and, and. Yeah, but they changed the meaning when they changed and to but, however, and other such, such things. Yeah. All right, the next question. Regarding Acts 15.28. Let's go to Acts 15.28. In 29. Acts 15.28 in 29. says, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Question reads, I understand what the council was doing to focus on what they thought were the key observances necessary for those turning to God with the emphasis on the ing, so they understand that, to join and table fellowship with believers. But how could believers who would not have been eating unclean foods have shared table fellowship with incoming believers who are likely to continue eating unclean foods unless they're told emphatically not to. And with unclean foods omitted from these verses, this is giving people over the centuries the grounds to say, see, God doesn't want non-Jews to observe the law relating to clean and unclean foods. Why would they have omitted something so basic as including no unclean foods? Well, the phrases from blood and from things strangled mean you must abstain from food that was not slaughtered in a biblically prescribed manner, and only clean animals were slaughtered this way. So it, by implication, excludes anything unclean like pigs, shrimps, lobsters, etc., because they would be excluded by the words from blood and from things strangled. They refer to animals that are slaughtered in a kosher manner, if you will forgive the use of the word kosher. That was like the very, 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 very basic things they were telling them. It's like a child, you know, the rudiments of, of learning things. You don't start off with high school. Right. And these people were wanting to turn. Right. So can they go down to the Jewish meat market and get a pig that's been slaughtered in a kosher manner? No. Not possible. Turning to Messiah doesn't mean going to the Jewish meat market. It means wanting to know everything that Messiah wants me to do. That's the meat market's like just one little part of it. But the very, I mean, the things they told them here is there's some very essential things that as non-Jewish people is prevalent. Yep. 
these things you must not do. We will teach you the rest. And how did the pagans slaughter their animals? Different ways, I'm sure. They probably, probably brained them, uh, strangled them. By strangling them to make sure that the blood remained in the meat. So they could not go to the Gentile meat market and get a piece of pig that would meet these requirements. And then they would have offered pig to the idols. So and the pigs would have been offered to idols. All that is true. They wouldn't have eaten the pigs. Right. They would not have eaten the pigs. If they're turning to God, the first thing you've got to do is leave behind these things that characterize pagan worship in their temples. Why did the pagans strangle the animals to make sure the blood stayed in the meat? makes it taste better and because God said don't eat the blood you know it's kind of like these these four requirements here kind of like sum up the first commandment you know thou shalt know the gods before me right you keep doing these things you're saying I don't honor you Lord I honor these gods over here. correct so if you made the choice to worship the Lord our God and he alone then you're not eating pigs and other unclean animals. Yeah. So it's, it's a matter of understanding what it means from blood and from things strangled. Well, even the sexual immorality was part of the idol worship. Yes, it was. Sexual immorality was definitely part of idol worship. Everything here is saying, first thing, nothing to do with idols. Right. Nothing. You're not turning to God if you're continuing to worship the idols. No. Absolutely right. Next one. <laughs> I like to think that I'd be on one of the white horses in Revelation 19.14. So let's go read Revelation 19.14. If you can't ride a horse, now you'll learn. Okay. Revelation 19.14. Revelation 19.14. Which says, in the armies in heaven, and you realize it doesn't have to be translated as armies. From the Hebrew, it could also be translated the hosts. Yeah, it's talking about the raptured and resurrected saints. So, in the hosts in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. So, the question says, but wouldn't women be excluded from being in an army? That's one reason I say, the word in Hebrew does not have to be translated as army. It can be translated as host. It's a large number and gathering of people. What about where, when Jesus was, or excuse me, Yeshua was asked about the uh, woman that's had seven husbands. And he said, you don't and they asked him, whose wife, whose, whose wife would she be in heaven? He said, you don't know because in heaven there are no male and female. Well, it says there's no giving in marriage would be like the angels in heaven. But you haven't let me answer the question yet. I'm sorry. We're getting there. We're getting there. But you're absolutely right. In the, it says we will be like the angels. Do the angels have two genders? They do not. No. So let's keep reading. But wouldn't women be excluded from being in an army? That's just, you're assuming that in heaven you will still be a woman. It says, women in scripture don't seem to have ever fought in a war as a member of an army. No, but she did drive a tent peg through the side of his head, right? She really nailed him. Yeah. 
Maybe the female saints only appear when Yeshua says the female amount of olives in Zechariah 14.5. What do you think? It says, similarly, how would women ever qualify as being a king or priest in Revelation 1.6 or Revelation 5.10 in the millennial kingdom when these are strictly male roles? Do you agree that we aren't really told roles female saints will have in the kingdom? My answer to that is after the rapture and resurrection, will we still have genders? Genders were assigned on earth because of marriage so that we can procreate and have children. Do the angels in heaven marry? It says no. Do they have children? They do not. So will there be two genders? I think the answer to that is no, but we'll see. The Nephilim, they came to earth and took on human bodies. Angels are spirit beings, but they have the ability to take on a human body. Is there ever an angel in the Bible that's mentioned as being female? Never. Never. So why is it that throughout Christendom all the angels are female with nice big um, blouses? <laughs> It's, it's not. <laughs> Never mind that. Yeah. They're trying to take what is holy and make it of a sexual character and nature, and they should not do that. So none of the angelic beings mentioned in the Bible are female. Not a cherub, not a seraph, not an ophan, nothing. So nothing in the Bible describes what our bodies will be like, except that it says we won't be giving in marriage. We will be like the angels in heaven. So we'll have to wait and see exactly what that means, but I think that means we won't have genders. But we shall see. Will we need plumbing? Will we need? Plumbing. I do not know. <laughs> you know, we could be seraphim, flaming tons of fire, who knows? We, we could be, but if so... I, I hope we're made out of asbestos, not like we are now. There you go. Be a pillar of the temple. Yeah. Paul was never, he even said it's a mystery what, It's a mystery what our bodies will be like that are glorified. We simply don't know. Peter says we're going to be stones. Yeah, but that's not literally stones. So I don't mean to make light of the response because the question is a very serious question. But I honestly think the answer is in heaven there is not going to be genders. But when will we know for sure? When we get there. We get there. I can tell you that in Hebrew, if you have a mixed gender group, you refer to that all as masculine. Always in the masculine. So... Will the women that get raptured and resurrected return on the white horses? The answer is absolutely. Will they still look like women? We'll find out. Next question. Regarding the word in English as ordinance or statute, why is there a masculine noun, chok, and a feminine noun, chukho, for ordinance for the same word. The masculine form is Hebrew word 2706. The feminine form is 2708. 
And the only thing that I can suggest is perhaps so the Torah codes work out correctly, going every 50th letter starting with the first Tav. Because a commandment is neither masculine nor feminine. It's a word. But there are no gender-neutral words in Biblical Hebrew. They all have a gender because that determines what kind of adjectives and what kind of verbs go with the noun. But the fact that a, a word is feminine does not mean that the object it describes is feminine. It's just a characteristic of the Hebrew language. An example, behemah. What is behemah? Animal or cattle? Is every animal or cattle feminine? No, but the word behemah is feminine. So the, the gender of the word, of the noun, does not relate to the gender of the thing it describes. That's just an aspect of biblical Hebrew. Did I ever tell people that biblical Hebrew was easy? I don't remember ever saying that. The next question is a real good one, but it takes half the page. So we may break it down into little pieces. This one says, I understand that Malachi 4 is about the day of the Lord. So let's turn to Malachi 4. I actually heard a preacher this week call him Malachi. Yeah, kind of that way. Was he serious? Yeah, he was serious. Maybe. So, Malachi chapter 4. The question says it's about the day of the Lord. Let's see. Verse 1. For behold, the day is coming. What day? Day of the Lord. So yes, it is about the day of the Lord. Burning like an oven. And all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. What happens to stubble when the fire comes? Burns up. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. What kind of prophecy? End times prophecy. That will leave them neither root nor branch. But you who fear my name, who fears the name? Not the wicked, but the righteous. The son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his, says wings, but his kanafim, which is the corners of the prayer shawl where the zitzit are tied. And you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. So the question reads, I understand that Malachi 4 is about the day of the Lord. In Malachi 4, verses 5 to 6, we say that this is about Elijah coming in the form of John the Baptist, and we align that with Luke 1, verses 5 to 17, with Zechariah praying in the temple. 
So let's go to Luke 1. And we know the person who asked the question is correct in this, but we'll go look at it anyway. Luke 1, verses 5 to 17. Luke 1, verses 5 to 17. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zechariah of the division of Abisha. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless, but they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, According to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer is heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So the question goes on in capital letters, but. Part A. If it's about John the Baptist appearing before Yeshua came the first time, then why does Malachi 4, 1-6 refer to the day of the Lord, specifically the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and not to something more apt, such as before the coming of Messiah, referring to Yeshua's first coming. For that answer, we must go to the book of Matthew. Chapter 17. To the Mount of Transfiguration. As you're turning there, let me say, this is a, that is the prophecy of Malachi 4, is a dual fulfillment prophecy, meaning it's fulfilled more than once. It's fulfilled first at Messiah's first coming, then finally and ultimately fulfilled at the second coming. So at the first coming, it's only partially fulfilled. Matthew chapter 17 starting in verse 1. Now after six days, Yeshua took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Why wasn't it after three days, or four days, or five days? This picture's the day of the Lord. The first 6,000 years is over. We've come to the seventh day, which is the day of the Lord. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as light. What Ezekiel reference did you put there? Ezekiel 43. Yes, Evan, did I hear you? Yes, um, 
I, I think the reference to the day of the Lord can be perfectly valid, but if you read the, the couple of sentences before the end of the previous chapter, in each case when it crops up in the Gospels, Jesus has just said, within the next few days, you will see, and in, in, I think it's the Luke one, where it's actually within the same chapter. So I think that the Lord is specifically saying, some of you will see, uh, see the kingdom, and that's what they see on the Mount of Transfiguration. I think you can read it that way very easily. Oh, you're absolutely right. And that's the way it turns up in each gospel. You're absolutely right. Let's back up to Matthew 16, verses 27 to 28. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels. That's at the day of the Lord, the return of Messiah. Then he will reward each according to his works. As sure I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death until they see. Underline that word see or circle it. The Son of Man coming in his kingdom. It does not say... They will not taste death until Messiah comes in the kingdom. The key word there is see, and Messiah is going to explain that to them shortly. So back to 17, verse 3. Behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Yeshua, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Why do they offer to make three tabernacles? Messiah returns at the feast of... Tabernacles to establish the kingdom. So they see him coming in the kingdom, and they, they relate that to the Feast of Tabernacles. Verse 5, While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. What does that hear him relate back to? Deuteronomy chapter 18, right? And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Yeshua came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Yeshua only. You know, as they came down the mountain, Yeshua commanded them, saying, Tell the what? Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. So when he said in chapter 16, Until they see... They saw it, but they saw it in a vision. They didn't see it physically happen. Verse 10, his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? This is what relates back to the question. Yeshua answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first. So Malachi 4 is not just about John the Baptist. Elijah will come first. In fact, who was one of the two witnesses with Messiah on the Mount of Transfiguration? was Elijah. The other was Moses. And he will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. So in Messiah's first coming, the prophecy was only partially fulfilled as John the Baptist filled the role and was in the spirit of Elijah with the mission of Elijah to turn the hearts of the children back to God the Father. But in Messiah's second coming, Elijah and Moses will prophesy for how long? Three and a half years. 
three and a half years, and then will be killed by the false Messiah, and three days later will be resurrected and caught back up to heaven. So it's a dual fulfillment prophecy. Part B says, if it is about John the Baptist, then how did he turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers? Let's go to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. In those days, what days? The 40 days of Teshuvah. John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So the repenting and calling people to make their way straight was to turn the hearts of the children back to God the Father. That's what that prophecy is all about. Um, since it refers to Isaiah chapter 40, let's go back and look at Isaiah chapter 40. How cool would it be to turn to a prophecy in Isaiah and find prophecy about you there? Wouldn't that be cool? Isaiah chapter 40, verses 2 to 4. Oh, we'll start, we'll start with verse 1. Which says, Nachamu, Nachamu, Ami. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So verse 3 in particular is about John the Baptist. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. We see also in John chapter 1 that that's about John. John chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. And no, John the Baptist did not write the Gospel of John. You guys all know that. John chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. After the people asked, Are you Elijah? And he says, No. Then they said to him, Who are you? Verse 22, that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am, quote, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. How did John know that was about him? He was filled with the Holy Spirit from 
his mother's womb. Part C. If the purpose of ascending Elijah as John the Baptist, he, Elijah was not a reincarnated as John the Baptist. John was only in the spirit and role of Elijah. If it was to avoid the Lord coming to strike the earth with a curse, why was turning the hearts of the fathers to the children, etc., important, rather than turning everyone's hearts to God? That's because turning the hearts of the fathers to the children, the children to the fathers, the father there is referring to God. So it is one and the same. It's not talking about having our earthly father love us more. Of course, that happens if the whole family gets saved, but that's not the main emphasis. Part D says, in Matthew 17.11, so let's go look at Matthew 17.11. Which says, Yeshua answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. So it's particularly about that. In Matthew 17, 11, Yeshua says, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. So wouldn't this mean that Malachi 4, 5 to 6 is referring to the time immediately before the tribulation period? Because when Elijah came the first time in the form of John the Baptist, we did not see John the Baptist restore all things. Nor do we see John the Baptist turning the hearts of the fathers to the children, etc. We saw John the Baptist trying to turn the hearts of the people to God by his preaching of repentance and his warnings of the false teachings of the scribes and Pharisees. So the insight into the question is right. Just understand its dual fulfillment. Let's go up to Revelation chapter 11. Elijah doesn't come before the day of the Lord. He comes before Messiah returns. Revelation chapter 11 talks about the two witnesses, which we saw in Matthew chapter 17, or Moses and Elijah. Moses represents the law, Elijah the prophets. Will this be Moses and Elijah sent down from heaven in a bodily form? Or will it be two people in the role and the spirit of Moses and Elijah? We'll just have to wait and see. But it says in Revelation 11, verse 3, And I will give power to my two witnesses, that's Moses and Elijah, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. That's exactly three and a half years. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. They have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. Who did that in the days of old? Elijah, Elijah did. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Who did that in the Old Testament? Moses. That was Moses. When they finished their testimony, that is the three and a half years are over, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt. What great city are we talking about here? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Why are they called Sodom and Egypt? 
because the false messiah is there and things are very evil, very wicked. Where also our Lord was crucified. Yep, that nails it down to Jerusalem. <laughs> then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. How many times did people over the last 2,000 years mock the book of Revelation? Because people around the world could not possibly see bodies lying in the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half days. You can now. Yeah. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And he ascended to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. So what have these two witnesses been doing for three and a half years? Preaching, Preaching repentance. The very same thing that John the Baptist preached when he was here the first time. What I think is it's going to be us up there calling them home and joining them in our midst, receiving them in our midst. That's what I think. But we'll see. Part E. Or do we do E already? Nope. According to Matthew 17, 11, shouldn't the world see Elijah return at the beginning of the tribulation period? The answer is yes. And if we look at what Yeshua said in Matthew eleven fourteen, won't Elijah actually be John the Baptist? No, in the first coming of Messiah, John the Baptist filled the role of Elijah. For the second coming, all as it tells us is Elijah. Whether it's Elijah returning in a physical mortal body, or whether it's somebody in the role like John the Baptist was at the first coming, we simply don't know. When will we find out? When it happens. Letter F. Is there anywhere else in scripture that says the same thing? That is, that Elijah will return before the day of the Lord. Well, there's Malachi 4, there's Matthew 17, and Revelation chapter 11. I can't think of any other place. Can you guys? Just those three. That's all I can think of. Now, these questions don't all come from the same person. But I think you guys understood that already. Which is probably why this one was so long. Next, Paul says in Hebrew 1 4. Well, we got to go to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. I like Hebrews chapter 4. Of course, I like most of the Bible. Not too fond of Philemon, but most of the Bible. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. Therefore, uh-oh, can't start with a therefore, can you? Back up to chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. And to whom did he, that is the Lord, swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter him because of unbelief. Therefore. So we know that what's following is going to tell us that we should not continue in unbelief, right? Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest... And what rest does this refer to according to Hebrews 4? The Sabbath rest. 
the day of the Lord, the millennial kingdom. Let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. The gospel was preached to Israel in the wilderness. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do, is actually will, enter that rest, as he has said. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. What's that mean, the works were finished from the foundation of the world? Messiah is the lamb slain from thee foundation of the world so he died for all who would accept him so what about those who perished in the wilderness they didn't have the faith verse 4 for he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way and God rested on the seventh day from all his works so it's about that it says Paul says in Hebrews 1 4 that Yeshua quote Having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance. So we need to go back to Hebrews chapter 1 and read verses 1 to 4. And I was so enjoying Hebrews chapter 4. But at any rate, Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 to 4 is where the question comes from. So that's what we should read. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds. Make note of that, because that's going to come up in a future question. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So Paul says in Hebrews 1 for the Yeshua, quote, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they, end quote, why on earth or anywhere else would Paul make a comparison between Yeshua and the angels? Better, more excellent, and having become implies Yeshua wasn't better or more excellent than the angels at some former point. What? Okay, I understand the question. Let's go to Psalm chapter 8. What's that? It was a good question. They're all good questions. Well, almost all. I still don't know what color Moses' dog was, but I'm working on it. <laughs> what? He was, Psalm, red, he was a red look. Psalm chapter 8, verse 5. Psalm chapter 8, verse 5. Psalm chapter 8, verse 5. We even sing it in one of our songs in here, don't we? For you have made him, that's referring to our Messiah Yeshua, a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. So when Messiah took on a body of flesh and blood, angels don't have a body of flesh and blood. Angels can't die. 
But Messiah stepped away from his heavenly glory and took on a body of flesh and blood so that he could be crucified, so he could shed his blood for us. When he took on that body of flesh and blood, born through the Virgin Mary, he became a little lower than the angels. He did this so that he could die for us because a kinsman redeemer has to be a kinsman in order to be a redeemer. These words are quoted for us in Hebrews chapter 2. So let's go back to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 to 9. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 to 9. For he, that is God, has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. But one testifying a certain place saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made them a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. And have set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him, but we see Yeshua, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. So that's what it means. That's what Paul means. When he says Messiah was made a little lower than the angels, it means he became a human body of flesh and blood so that he could be crucified, shed his blood, be buried, and resurrected. Once he was resurrected, of course, is he still lower than the angels? No. no. It's only while he's in that human body of flesh and blood. The next question is also in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9. So we're going to read Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, because that's the whole paragraph. Question? Yes, ma'am? Maybe you covered this, but you were going to go back to the word worlds, Yes, in, in verse Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, there is another question coming. It just hasn't come up yet. Sorry. <laughs> it's going to say, is there any other place in the scripture where it says, and this is one. Okay. Now, so far I'm on page 23, and the questions we're looking at right now are on page 10. So <laughs> it's a ways down the road, but it's coming. So Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, let's read it. But to the Son, what Son is that? Yeshua, our Messiah. He, God says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So he calls Messiah God. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. So it says in Hebrews 1.9, Paul is talking about Yeshua as the Son of God and quotes Psalm 45, 
verses 6 to 7. Quote, you love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. The word for companions, quote unquote, is chaber. Um, it should be chaber. But whenever you look on the um, interlinear and go then to the Strong's, the Strong's doesn't know not to make that middle bait a hard B sound. It should be soft. Chaver. But it's Hebrew word 2270. Question is, who are Yeshua's companions? The word chaver means friend. So who are Messiah's friends? Go to John chapter 15. Yep, Messiah answers the question, doesn't he? Mm -hmm. John chapter 15, verses 14 and 15. You are my friends. What's that next two-letter word? If. You do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I heard from my father I have made known to you. So who are Yeshua's companions? His friends? Those who love him enough. If you love me, keep my commandments. There you go. Next question. Matthew chapter 18, verse 35. So let's go back to Matthew 18. Matthew chapter 18, verse 35. Oh, purgatory. No, no purgatory. Matthew 18, 35. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. So the question says, Matthew 18, 35 says, God the Father will administer punishment. So my heavenly Father will also do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. I thought only Yeshua dispenses justice and sends people to the lake of fire. Lots of references, including Isaiah 9-7. So let's go back to Isaiah 9-7. This is the questioner's reference. Of the increase of his government. We sang about that tonight, didn't we? In peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Does that say anything about sending people to lake of fire? No. Let's keep going. They then reference John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verses 26 to 27. 
John chapter 5, verses 26 to 27. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. So does Messiah have the power to judge and to execute judgment? Of course he does. Then to Matthew 25. But it, the, the word had the word also there. Would that not mean in addition to God? Yes, it would mean in addition. Matthew 25. It doesn't really have to mean anything. Correct. Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 36. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. He will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then a king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me drink. Oh, you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. And I was sick in prison, and all that stuff. You visited me, etc., etc. All that's true. And then they say, but Matthew 18.35 says the Father does the judging. So is dispensing justice shared between the Father and the Son? Go to John chapter 10. Verses 30 to 33. I and my father are one. Echad. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Yeshua answered them, many good works I have shown you from my father. Which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself God. I can understand people saying, When Yeshua was on this earth in a body of flesh and blood, and God's in heaven, because God is everywhere, I can see them having confusion with God judging and Messiah judging. But after the resurrection and ascension back to heaven, do we have three gods around a charcoal fire in heaven arguing over what to do? The answer is no. He's trying to let us know. He always talks about my Father in heaven. He tells us to pray, our Father who art in heaven, because he wants worship and prayer directed at God. He never says, worship me, pray to me. Always my Father, because when he ascends back to heaven, is there three different gods around a fire? The answer is no. So in Matthew 18.35, the people do not yet know that he and the Father are one. 
And that's the best I can do to answer that one. Do you care if I add a scripture? No, add a scripture. Uh, back in John 5. Back in John 5, where all judgment is given to the yeah. Son. If you look at verse 30. John 5, 30. I can of myself do nothing, as I hear I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of my Father who sent me. So when Messiah judges, whose judgment is he presenting? He's presenting the, he's presenting the Father's judgment. So he's, the Father is acting through him to execute the judgment. So the Father's acting through him to execute the judgment. Messiah is just the fleshly body on earth through which God operates. You know, there's also Revelation 21. It's also Revelation 21. That just kind of confirms everything that we're saying here. Verse 6. Revelation 21, 6 says, He said to me, It is done. I am the Aleph and the top, the beginning and the end. I will give a... Am I in the right place? Yes. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who over who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things and I will be his God and he shall be my son. Right. So when we hear about the Alpha and the Omega, the Aleph and the Tav, we always associate that with two. That is Messiah. And then it says here I will be his God and he shall be my son. Right. So It says here Messiah will be our God. Yeah. And in Hebrews, God called Messiah God. Yeah, so here he's saying Yeah. If you've come out of a Trinitarian background, you're used to thinking of God the Father as separate from the Son, separate from the Holy Spirit. In fact, the words that are used are co-existent, co-equal. That they exist at the same time separately and of equal power and authority. And it makes you think of three gods around a campfire which is why I use the word triunity. God may interface with us as the Father is with the Son, with the Holy Spirit, but there's only one God. And I think another confusion is... Good and loud. People say, you know, Yeshua ascended and is sitting at the right hand of the Father, and that phrase never appears in the Scripture. Yeah. And it's just an anthropomorphism, a way for us to imagine something that is just too hard for us to grasp. Okay. Got just a few more minutes. Let's do the next one. Oh, I didn't give much of an answer for this one. So yeah, let's end with this one. Go to Second Peter chapter three. Second Peter chapter three. Verses three to four. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lessons, saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Question reads, in Second Peter chapter 3, verses 3 to 4, he says, and then quotes what I just read, we know the world is full of scoffers. Is that true? Yeah. But does the language in the scripture narrow down the people that Peter's referring to, to by him specifying, number one, people who know of the promise of his coming, 
We can't scoff about the promise of his coming if you haven't heard about his coming. So, yeah, that's true. Two, people who use the term fathers fell asleep. Not sure that's much of a narrowing, but I can't argue with it. And three, people who believe in creation rather than evolution. Well, true, if they believe in evolution, then they don't believe in the Bible at all. They don't believe there's a second coming, so all that's true. It says, by applying all three of these descriptions to the people who will be scoffing and walking according to their own less, is Peter possibly referring just to scripture-believing Jewish people who are expecting Messiah to come would have become so secular that they have lost hope and faith? And all I can respond to a question like that is, well, it's possible. That's not the way I would look at it. I think the scoffers come from more than just the Jewish people. But I think the person limits it to the Jewish people because of the phrase, the fathers fell asleep. That's usually something that a Jewish person would say more than a Gentile. But that's not entirely true. I oftentimes refer to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And while I may have some Jewish DNA, I've got some Gentile DNA too. So I didn't have a very good answer for that one. We'll pick up next time on page 11 in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28.